This episode of Shameless is brought to you by Lululemon. Lululemon tights are designed to go to great lengths with you and built to last through any movement. Hello and welcome to the Shameless Book Club. This month we read The Island of Missing Trees by award-winning Turkish-British author Elif Shafak. The book follows the love story between two teenagers, Kostas, a Greek Cypriot, and Daphne, a Turkish Cypriot, whose forbidden romance means they can only meet at a taverna on the island between their homes. Witnessing their romance through its ebbs and flows over the many years this story encompasses is the fig tree that lives inside the taverna, the place of safety for Kostas and Daphne. Shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, The Island of Missing Trees is an intergenerational story about past pain, tradition and enduring love. Joining me today is just Zara McDonald, no Michelle. Just the two of us. Just the two of us today. Michelle is on leave and we hope she's having a wonderful time. We miss you, Michelle, if you're listening. So we are so more than happy to carry the baton mm-hmm. for book club this week and I am so excited to talk to you about this one. Me too. Okay, Zara, as always, let us start with a chat about the author, about Elif Shafak. She is an author, as we know she wrote this book, and also <laughs> an activist. She seems totally incredible I think we always have a bit to dig into when it comes to the author I mean I as a reader always find it incredibly interesting and important to understand the context of the author but I felt like and I wonder if you feel like this too as I was doing my research for this I was like there's more on Elif Shafak on the internet than almost any other author yes and more context here so as you said she is a Turkish British novelist and activist she's published 19 works and she is best known for her novels including the 40 rules of love now I'm really sorry to do like a bit of a shameless plug here but (laughs) I first heard about the 40 rules of love when I interviewed Susan Carland with Mish for the books that changed my life oh yes she spoke about that being one of the books that changed her life so if people want to hear more about her books and how they impact readers I would definitely recommend that interview with Susan Carlin after this you gotta download the listener app to yeah. listen to that one don't you <laughs> yeah you do but you listen for free yes <laughs> but the other thing Annabelle as well is she's widely regarded right as like Turkey's leading and most famous female novelist yes she is she has said before that she I'm paraphrasing but she said something like she thinks all good writers need to remain readers like throughout their lives and that is so evident in all of her work, like all the interviews that I read about her in this book, you can tell that she reads so much and she consumes so much knowledge because she is such a knowledgeable person. Yeah, well, the detail Mm. in this book was like second to none. And I also really enjoy when I read a book, reading at the end like a note to the reader, which sort of details the levels of research that an author can go to. And like, again, in this book, some of the stuff she said at the very end was very interesting. I also found it really interesting that her parents actually divorced when she was really young and she moved with her mum to Turkey. And she said this of her childhood. Divorce was unusual at the time, but what was more unusual was that my grandmother, who was not educated herself, intervened so that my mother could return to uni and have a career. She was later a diplomat. Usually young female divorcees were immediately married off to someone older because they were seen as in danger and needing someone to protect them. She said growing up around her mum and her grandmother had a huge impact on Mm. her, particularly her sense of like 
patriarchy. Yes. She is like a huge advocate for women's rights, right? Yeah. She has actually a PhD in political science and has taught at universities all over the world, including Oxford University, where she's actually an honorary <laughs> fellow. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it just sounds so good. I wrote honorary fellow and I was like, I don't know what that is. Congratulations, though. It sounds incredible. She's also a founding member of the European Council for Foreign Relations and also holds a doctorate of humane letters from Bard College. Can you have a guess at what that is? No, but did you Google it? Or did I, you did, I did Google it. <laughs> tell me, tell me, tell me. It is an award you get for making significant contributions to society. Oh, wow. I know, huge. Well, I'm not surprised by that because I did a lot of reading, as I said, as we were prepping for this. And she did this interview with The Guardian a while ago where she spoke about the fact that she is also, as well as her novels, well known for her politics and her activism. And she said... If you're a writer from Turkey, Pakistan, Nigeria, Egypt, you do not have the luxury of being apolitical. You can't say, that's politics, I'm just doing my work. For me, coming from the women's movement, politics is not just about parties and parliament. There is politics in our private space and in gender relations as well. Wherever there is power, there is politics. You can see that in this book and from everything I read, this is actually arguably one of her least political books yes she said something I again I don't remember which interview this is from but she said something like to be a good writer you need to like dip into the nuances and the gray area and that's going to piss people off yeah um which has gotten her I think into some trouble in Turkey in the past right yes well it really has in 2006 she actually faced charges of and the charge was insulting Turkishness for discussing genocide in her novel The Bastard of Istanbul that book sort of covered the Armenian genocide of 1915 now had she been convicted of that she would have faced a maximum jail term of three years oh my gosh yeah she actually I wrote an interview and I know where this is from this time it is from (laughs) iNews she said this about a trial in Turkey in Turkey everything can be an issue you talk about history that can offend the authorities you talk about today as in contemporary life and that can offend the authorities too you talk about sexuality that can offend the authorities and you can be put on trial prosecuted for anything and she was she was the case lasted a year before it was dismissed during which she had to be protected by bodyguards the entire time and although she was acquitted of those charges her writing makes it really dangerous for her to return that apparently the authorities like go through her books when they're published and things like that so I mean, she's really put herself on the line to be able to tell these stories. And you know what? It kind of, that experience ties in with this book in a way of being like displaced, maybe feeling like a connection to your home country, but well, she can't go back. She fears for her life going back. Yeah, absolutely. I think I heard her say that in some interviews. It's like she loves London. She's been there, I think, for the last few years because as you said, she cannot go back to Turkey. But she feels stuck there and she feels like an affiliation with London, an affiliation with Turkey – But again, there is that sense of displacement too where sometimes people don't always make you feel welcome. Yeah, it's kind of similar to Costas, right, in the story where he flees because of the war and then he can't really go back because it's so tumultuous. For sure. Yeah. Speaking of Costas. Uh, (laughs) Nice little segue. Let us dabble in a bit of a convo about characters. Costas was my favourite. Did you have a favourite? Yeah, I think he was my favourite too. But the thing is, what really struck me about this book was how lovable these characters were. Like, all of them were completely lovable. And I feel like during book club, we often talk about how sometimes the best books are with really like flawed characters, Mm. but 
I didn't really find these characters very flawed. I agree. They were all perfect in very different (laughs) ways. Talk to me about your love of Costas. So, as I said, I love him the most. I just think, here I I wrote, Costas, love heart, what a guy. (laughs) Yeah, so I think he's obviously the most lovable character. As, like, a young teenager, yes, I thought he was, like, a really caring boyfriend, would you say, to Daphne? But I liked him most as a dad. Dad Costas was my favourite because even though he was painted as a little bit distant from Ada because of obviously the death of his wife, he was just so awkward and gentle and also very familiar. (laughs) Like the passages where he's trying to desperately connect with Ada by knocking on her door and like making her laugh Mm. is, oh my gosh, my heart. (laughs) I totally agree. I mean, he seemed incredibly beautiful. He was my favourite character too, as I said. The way he cared so passionately for people and for plants, I just felt he had the most gentle soul and I really believed him as a character. Like I could see him wholeheartedly. And I think, as you said, his clunkiness in trying to be a really good dad dad a single widower to Ada after Daphne died was so realistic I think a lot of people could see a lot of men in their own lives who have huge hearts being very similar yeah especially during a time for Ada where she was a teenager how old was she 16 16. yeah it's a hard time to be a kid that age especially going through I imagine what she was going through would be extra hard. So that dynamic between dad and 16-year-old teenage girl was just like so funny to read. Yeah, hugely funny and hugely realistic. How did you feel about Daphne? I liked Daphne. I've written my characters in kind of a hierarchy. Oh, sorry, have I mucked with your hierarchy? (laughs) No, 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 not at all. But Daphne is kind of sitting near the the bottom of my hierarchy just simply because she was like purposefully painted to be like someone who has quite a hard shell, right? Yeah. And that immediately as a reader isn't the most like warming feeling but I appreciated her as a character I thought she and Miriam had like a really funny sisterly relationship in that they were so different yeah but they obviously like stuck together but also not because they were in separate countries yeah I actually loved Daphne nearly as much as I loved Costas really yeah I mean I adored her. I loved her sort of feistiness and her layers and her complexities. And in some way, I found her a more interesting character than Costas because he was a bit more straightforward. I mean, despite it kind of being hinted towards throughout the whole book, you know, with references to her alcoholism and things like that, I was really surprised towards the end about when they spoke about how she died. I don't know if that's just my naivety, but I just sort of had assumed from the start she must have died of cancer or something. Yes. Was it just me? No, I felt the exact same way. I feel like maybe because we've read that trope a lot. I've never read about a story like this in a family where the mum kind of like detaches herself from the family because of like mental illness and then that's kind of how she dies. It's a really hard storyline to tell. Yeah, for sure. And I think it really made me wonder, even though this was told as like this incredibly beautiful love story, and it really was, Do we think she would have died like this had she not chosen Costas and London? Like the implication in the book is that she would have, right? Yeah, that it was always kind of in her. Yeah. Because the parallel that was drawn at the end was that like you can be flourishing up top but the roots could be rotting and maybe that was always going to happen. It's a – I don't know, it's hard. Yes, because the only sort of niggling feeling I have and I do think it's like 5%. Like I think pretty wholeheartedly this would have happened no matter what. But I was like – could part of this as well have been a result of being so far from her family and being lonely? But then she was 
full of a lot of love with Ada and, and with Costas. But that was a really hard storyline and I thought she was a really beautifully written character. Maybe your 5% is onto something though because I think about this quite often like if in a parallel universe something happened and, yeah. you know, if you didn't – for example, I think about what would happen if my parents didn't come to Australia and if I had existed in China, what kind of life I yes. would have led. And who knows if that – experience of moving to London for Daphne triggered something in her brain? Well, I think it's like one of those age-old philosophical questions, right? It's like, do you believe that, you know, everything is already mapped out for you when you're born? Or do you believe that you have like a lot of agency in your life and the decisions you make actually have an impact on how long you live and the relationships you have? That sends me into a spiral when I go too far. (laughs) We will never know. And that's true. Miriam, I do want to talk to you about because what total sunshine she was. Like I thought particularly the juxtaposition, I think, between her energy and that incredibly intense dark storm in London when she arrived. I thought that was a really beautiful sort of almost metaphor to be like sunshine is here in the form of her and how she was desperate to try and wear more colour. I thought she perfectly embodied that sort of single auntie energy. I loved her relationship with food. I loved how she spoke about how political food was and how other cultures just simply got things wrong. And I loved how sort of woo-woo and spiritual she was. She was like a perfect character to me. Sidebar about the food. Every time food was mentioned in this book, I was like salivating. Yeah, yeah. It was described so well. Especially when she was like cooking up these amazing feasts, just putting together things from the cupboard. And I was like, I simply do not believe you. Like no one can do it that well just with what they've got in the cupboard. That is magic. But I agree about Miriam. She was like the maternal warmth that Ada was needing at that time and I loved like every now and then in passages where Aid would be like and after that Miriam and I got a little bit closer and it was like oh well I love that they're getting to know each other and they're falling in love like that yeah 100 percent let's talk about Ada yes I adored her yeah she was a sassy queen yeah (laughs) I loved it I thought that she had this fire inside of her that I definitely didn't have at that age and I don't even know if I have that now but I wish that I did and I just loved how like curious she was and how demanding she was of the truth when no one around her was really giving her any. Yeah, I I agree with that. I actually think she was probably the character I connected with the least, but I did Mm. preface this whole thing by saying I loved them all. Yeah, I think I found her a bit closed off, but maybe that meant she was perfectly written as a 16-year-old because I think all good well-written teenagers do have a bit of a wall up. I thought her dialogue was written perfectly. I thought she was like equal parts, sullen, stubborn, sassy, curious, all of those kinds of things, just like really trying to sort out who she is. Yeah, and also this might actually sound ageist and I don't mean it to be, but I find (laughs) it incredible how Elif Shafak can write a character like Ada so well, like a teenage girl living in this time. It was like baffling to me that someone who is not of that age can write so accurately about the teenage experience now. Well, I don't think that's ageist. I think that (laughs) there should be kudos to anyone who can write a character that is different to them really Mm. well. Like it must mean that they can observe the world incredibly well. Yeah, true. I want to talk about one or two more people. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Before we go to the ad, Yusuf and Yorgos. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Their love was beautiful and I just wanted a side story about how they got together their life and like their whole beginning and sad end it was like 
Oh, and how the stuttering stopped when they were together. I just could not get enough of reading about them. They were incredibly beautiful, I agree. Like a little spin-off book about them would yes. be amazing. It's so funny when you're reading a book and you're told in the first few pages a certain thing. Like, you know, we were told about the well. And then you forget about it. Yeah. And then it comes back to it. And I Oh, was my, like, I had actually forgotten me about too. the well. Me too. I was like, I'm an idiot like of course this was them but yeah. I think that must mean either I'm stupid or it's a beautifully written book yeah that she encourages you to forget and then you are reminded and you think oh my god those two and their love and what happened to them I would love to just sit down with Elif Shafak and have her explain to me every decision that she made yeah. and how she made it because this book beautifully beautifully constructed Zara, I want to talk to you about the fig tree. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was like the obvious bit about the book that surprised us all. But before we do that, let's hear a word from today's sponsor. Mish, I don't know about you, but over the years of purchasing activewear, you really get to know what brands create products that last and what brands don't. I think everyone will agree Lululemon's activewear is up there with the absolute best. I completely agree. Lululemon is definitely one of the leading activewear brands. Whether you're a runner like Zara and Annabelle or tend to prefer a brisk walk like I do for your exercise, Lululemon has something for any kind of physical activity. I recently tried out Lululemon's fast and free tight during my weekly run and these helped me feel light on my feet with a second skin lightweight sensation. They are also sweat wicking, which tends to be a necessity during my workouts. Comfortable quality activewear, give it all to me. I've been a fan of Lululemon's Align range for a while and their Align pants are no different. These are completely weightless with a buttery soft fabric that is incredible. I think the Align pants hold a place in all of our hearts. In fact, I'm wearing mine right now (laughs) as we speak. With four-way stretch, sweat wicking and breathable fabric, they really are a dream. If you also enjoy something a little more high intensity the tightest stuff tight is here to help you through with slick low friction support these are just another pair from their great collection lululemon stock sizes 2 to 20 which is up to a size 24 in australian sizes you can find them at lululemon.com.au or follow on socials at lululemon AUSNZ. thank you so much to lululemon for making this episode of shameless possible Okay, let's talk about one character, one narrator that we haven't touched on yet, the fig tree. Mm -hmm. I was surprised. I was surprised. I thought it was so random, but I grew to love it. I grew to love that stupid little... (laughs) You can say stupid little fig tree. I grew to love that little fig tree or big fig tree. After a while, I thought it was a very effective device. When the tree started lusting after Costas, I was like, yes, girl, get it. (laughs) Oh my God. So the thing about this is I think embarrassingly it took about two or three chapters from the fig tree for me to realise, no, no, like this is the fig tree narrating. I think I instinctively (laughs) just assumed it wasn't because how can you have a sentient tree as like your main character? And I definitely felt conflicted at the start. I thought, oh, goodness, okay, I really need to put, like, my big girl on here (laughs) and be mature about this and, like, lean into it, which is exactly what I did. And once I got used to it, I thought it was an incredibly beautiful device. But I did find myself maybe 20% of the time pulling out of the novel and realising that it was a tree. You know, like when you're in it and in the story, you're like, this makes perfect sense. What a beautiful, magical story. But when you remove yourself from it just (laughs) every so often and remind yourself in reality it's a tree falling in love with a human, 
it was discombobulating. It's like having to explain a book to a friend, like, oh, yeah, it's about a tree. It's a telling story about a tree. It's from the thing the when you perspective. think about it too much, um, or I thought about it in my own world context, is when I was like, oh, gosh. Yeah. But that only happened about 20% of the time. It's funny before you said I had to put like my big girl pants on to read yeah. this. Pants, hat, hat whatever. <laughs> because I feel like this took me back to like childhood. The magic was, faraway tree. Yes, it was yeah. so magical. For also, sure. I don't know if you know this or if it's a commonly known place, but do you remember Smorgies? Was that a um, restaurant? Was it like a buffet? <laughs> yeah. So I remember it because I never went there. And I remember everyone else going there and I'd never been to a buffet or all you can eat. And all I ever wanted to do in my life was go there. You would have loved it. Well, it's closed down now. I but know. it was in Burwood, which was my old hometown. And there was a tree in the middle of it that like yes. spoke. <laughs> I used to drive past this. Yes. This damn fig tree. Every time it was mentioned, I was just picturing smorgies the whole time. <laughs> the tree in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's very sweet. But anyway, I thought that as a narrator, it did a really good job of like bringing in new bits of information and kind of like leading the narrative in really interesting ways. Like when we find out about certain deaths or like certain discoveries, having the bees whisper it to the tree or little birds tell the tree new discoveries was beautiful to me. Yeah, there was something incredibly spiritual about this book. And Mm. I do think if I was recommending it to someone... I would tell them, like, you really have to lean into the spirituality element of this book because the tree sort of acts as, like, this omnipresent, like, godlike figure that's sort of watching everything. And when you appreciate that, it's, like, incredibly beautiful and and magical. It's kind of, like, the only word I can think of, right? I thought the story, too, of Daphne being reincarnated, I guess, a Mm. little bit as the fig tree was incredibly beautiful I thought, you know, it's nice to know that she's going to be there in the backyard watching over them. And I'm not a particularly religious person, but I do I do think I inherently believe that when people die, they go somewhere oh, and yeah. that they do watch over. Um, I've definitely felt like that in my life. So I felt for me personally with that sort of idea about the world, it was a perfectly comforting ending, that there is something very beautiful about the idea that humans do not own having a soul, like that sense. And that's the thing about this book. You have to be able to lean into those spiritual elements. But I found that incredibly comforting. Yeah, so did I. I too have always thought that like the spirit goes into something, hopefully after you die. Now, Elif has said that it wasn't until she came up with the idea of using a tree's perspective in this way that she felt confident writing about the Cypriot conflict. This was her quote. I couldn't dare to write about it because it's such an emotionally charged subject. It was only when I found the voice of the fig tree that I felt free to rise above these conflicting nationalisms and tell the story. Yeah. And I find that so smart because the tree, it's like you can't blame a tree for anything. It brings a sense of like objectivity to the story, which I loved. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think one thing this book really did for me is made me feel that I do need to spend more time like appreciating the ecosystems that have existed for far longer than I've been here. I think we're incredibly good as humans to put ourselves at the centre of everything Mm. and consider ourselves the centre of the world. And I'm like, I probably don't spend enough time. Like as as I had 20% of the time pulling myself out of the book thinking, oh my God, it's a sentient tree. I also had moments, maybe 10 to 15% of the time where I was like, well, what if 
trees actually do have souls. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like what if I have completely discounted the areas of the world or parts of the world that can feel and believe things too. Yeah. Like I cannot be arrogant enough to rule that out. I think I read in an interview that that was what Elif was trying to do, draw people's attention to the parallels between trees and humans and that there are so many that people just don't know about. Yeah. And I find that like beautifully told, for example, with that root tree analogy and with Daphne going through depression, she tied that all together so well seamlessly. Oh, the symbolism for yeah, sure. Symbolism, yeah, symbolism. That's what I was <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think finally on the fig tree, I thought there was something incredibly sweet about the storyline of the fig tree being buried through the storm, yeah. like that it needed to be protected. And I didn't know that you could bury a fig tree. I didn't know that you could bury a tree in order to keep it alive. Like that, I, I learned a lot through this book. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that was beautifully told. Another thing I felt like was beautifully illustrated for the readers was this idea of generational silence and this idea that pain can kind of be inherited through the generations. Yeah. How did you feel about how that theme was told? I thought it was incredibly well told. Like I, you can understand how someone like Ada, who's 16, felt incredibly lost and her identity was clearly so tied to her parents. She didn't have siblings and I thought that was another perfect detail. I thought the only child detail was so perfect because I can understand why she wanted to know and needed to know about where she came from and just as equally why her parents wanted her to know nothing of their pain. And I think it does speak volumes to how our parents, no matter where they come from or what their backstory is, do try to protect their kids. But often they actually can't protect them from much because like their traumas live within them and like we live with that. They're like a distinct part of who they are. And we touched on this before, that section towards the end about girdling that Costa spoke to. And I really want to read it out because I thought this was – I keep saying the word perfect, but I did find it perfect. He said – It's called girdling. There can be many reasons behind it. In this case, the chestnut was grown in a circular container before being planted out as a sapling. My point is the tree was being strangled by its own roots. Because it was happening under the earth, it was undetectable. If the encircling roots are not found in time, they start putting pressure on the tree and it just becomes too much to bear. Ada was silent. He went on, your mother loved you very much more than anything in this world. Her death has nothing to do with the absence of love. She was blooming and thriving with your love and I'd like to believe with mine too. But underneath, something was strangling her. The past, the memories, the roots. That is perfect, that it's telling. just yeah. like, and you can understand how that is passed down mm. That and, and how Daphne herself is probably you know, inherited trauma from her own parents and their own experiences. And it's like that kind of stuff does live within you, is passed down from generation to generation. And and you can try to fight it and you can thrive with other forms of love. But at the end of the day, that sometimes can be too much to bear. Totally. And like for Ada, even just the silence of not having her family explain these things to her yeah. is like palpable in itself and it creates its own kind of trauma like I found it fascinating because throughout the whole book Ada is desperately trying to uncover her family story and is clearly like emotionally distraught as a result because no one is telling her because that's exactly what her parents were trying to avoid like they didn't want her to feel emotionally distraught but she was feeling it anyway even though she didn't really know much about her family yeah I mean and I don't have kids at all but every kind of conversation you read about parenting and stuff like that 
seems to be like that seems to be the ultimate cliche yeah in trying to protect them you still yeah. inflict the same thing you don't want to inflict exactly. on them and if my mum is listening to this I'm fine <laughs> I'm talking in a more general theoretical <laughs> sense I mean English Shabak did an interview with The Guardian about this and she said I have always believed in inherited pain it is not scientific perhaps but things we cannot talk about easily within families do pass from one generation to the next unspoken in immigrant families the older generation often wants to protect the younger from past sorrow so they choose not to say much and the second generation is too busy adapting being part of the host country to investigate so it's left to the third generation to dig into memory. I have met many third generation immigrants who have older memories even than their parents. Their mothers and their fathers tell me this is your home forget about all of that but for them identity matters. I am intrigued on your perspective on this if you do feel comfortable having immigrant parents too like is there part of this that you think yeah that's pretty bang on yeah but in that I guess I slot into the second generation where it's like you just get on with it and adapt and it's your kids that are going to be asking you the questions yeah that's very interesting I do find that pretty accurate I feel very curious about my past and my history but I guess maybe to an extent there was so much adapting going on that I haven't had like the time or energy to really dig. I often think like I want to go back through, for example, like my parents' journals and stuff like that or even like to interview them maybe and ask them questions about their story because I know just like a very surface level amount. But I also feel overwhelmed at the idea. So I actually am sure that the next generation will have that energy to ask. Well, too, and I feel like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I do feel like from the conversations that we've had too, there is a certain level of like, oh, I kind of want to make something of this life because they've given me so much yes and you're busy getting on with that like that feels like your role yes there's like a lot of pressure already yeah. to just do what they hoped for by coming here like yeah. you know have their kids have jobs and like get like, paid more than we did when yeah, we yeah. first got here but yeah I definitely find it interesting that Elif Shafak was able to like set those three generations and kind of like explain the different types of people those three generations tend to be because I did find that quite accurate yeah I totally agree with you I thought I thought this part of the book was like incredibly well told yeah me too it's interesting because Miriam in the book says this to Ada wisdom consists of 10 parts nine parts of silence one part of words to which Ada disagrees and says I don't understand what you're all afraid of people my age aren't afraid to ask questions Mm -hmm. and then later on in the book there's a passage where Daphne is like interviewing family members and survivors and notices how eager the third generation are the most curious to unearth silences and it goes back to that quote from Elif Shafak that like the generations approach unearthing silences in very different ways. Yes completely and I think it is even just generational too like our generation of people our age, they just want to know more. I think we've yeah. grown up with the internet. We've grown up with way more than probably we need. And, yeah, I think it's incredibly interesting how much this was a thread throughout the book that younger people our age are desperate to find things out when the people older than them are trying to put a lid on it a little bit. It's also probably a little bit about how safe generations feel because I imagine yeah. for my parents – being first-generation immigrants, they wouldn't have felt necessarily safe to be able to explore all of these things. And for myself, I feel like a few levels more safe than they would have felt. So I do have a lot of curiosity in my brain and a lot of like confidence in being able to speak out my curiosities. Yeah. So I'm sure that confidence will just grow as the generations do. 100%. Let's talk about like the general weaknesses and the strengths of the book to kind of tie this thing up because I want to know, did you have some weaknesses? Did I? I don't actually think I did. I'm looking through my notes here and I honestly loved the whole book. I did think if there was a part of the book that I 
was a little bit bored by, and I hate saying that. And I think this is an indictment on me. No, no, it'll be on me too. I know exactly what you're going to say. Is like reading the passages from the fig tree's perspective that were really, really in-depth about nature. I found myself kind of (laughs) getting a bit distracted and looking elsewhere. me too. But that was – I think that's an us thing. I know, but I do think a lot of people reading this book might not feel differently about that. Like – I wish I was better and I wish I was smarter and I wish I want to be able to read them really seamlessly. But I I struggled a bit, to be honest, sometimes in those chapters. And I felt towards the end that maybe, I don't know, the fig tree chapters got perhaps too make-believe, like too much on the magical mm-hmm. side. Like that the mosquito told the tree about the death of Costas and Daphne's baby. In many ways, I think I wanted to hear that from the people that experienced it. I think I wanted to hear that from Daphne telling Costas. But then I also understood the other part of me, why the fig tree as like the number one observer in the book, as that sort of omnipotent presence needed to tell us first. So I could see why it was done. But I also was like a mosquito, really? (laughs) It really took away from like the impact of finding that out yeah. it was like oh a mosquito is telling us yeah I feel less upset about it yeah the, like the, it's the mosquito like the mosquito bit the baby <laughs> like you can't that's the thing like you yeah. cannot bring your own life reality and context to this story because that's when it does lose you yeah but I feel like that wasn't a huge weakness for me I don't think that took away from the strengths in this book that were oh my gosh I had so many strengths written down I agree with you I think that's actually oh wait I have one more week <laughs> tiny tiny yeah, tiny because I agree with you the strengths just completely outweighed I think the plot point where Ada went viral. Oh, yep. yep. I wasn't sure if it worked. It felt like it was the most obvious way to make things modern. But it's (laughs) like things just don't go viral. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I agree. I hadn't picked up on that in my mind, but I agree with you now that you're saying it. Because also if she went viral, surely someone in her family like caught her on on the interwebs or on TV. Or someone would tell the parents or something if it was as viral as, you know, we were told it was. I think I don't actually think we needed that plot point at all. Yeah. I think we could have got rid of the virality of it because just being filmed and having that move in your own social media circles is so traumatic enough. Yeah, I agree. Just having even that scream just on its own probably could have been just as impactful. Like having that pent up sadness and rage and all that just come out in a public setting would be like pretty traumatic for a kid. Absolutely. How about the writing though? The writing. Oh, so beautiful. I have so many passages that I had taken photos of. May I read you a random one? You may. I love hearing them back. I didn't know where to slot this in, in the combo, so I'm just going to read it now. This one is about <laughs> like superstitions, yeah. which I found resonated a lot with someone who was brought up being told a lot of like superstitious Chinese stuff yep. that often made me feel a bit like stifled and a little bit afraid, I guess. Here is the passage. We are scared of happiness, you see. From a tender age, we've been taught that in the air, an uncanny exchange is at work, so that for every morsel of contentment, there will follow a morsel of suffering. For every peal of laughter, there is a drop of tear ready to roll, because that is the way of this strange world. And hence, we try not to look too happy, even on days when we might be feeling so inside. And it's this idea of like constantly walking on eggshells, like even if something might be going your way, if you've been brought up to believe certain superstitions... It's hard to fully feel like the happiness. Yeah, that was a really beautiful section. There was another bit, to be honest. The writing for me right at the end gave me goosebumps. The last sort of few passages where we learn that Daphne is now reincarnated as that beautiful Mm. fig tree. And this is how it reads. 
The air is warming up, the sky above London the shyest shade of blue. I can feel a pale ray of sunshine combing the earth excruciatingly slowly. It will take time, renewal. It will take time, healing. But I know and trust that any moment now my beloved Costas will come out to the garden with a spade in his hand, perhaps wearing his old navy parka again, the one we bought together from a vintage shop on Portobello Road, and he will dig me out and pull me up, holding me gently in his arms, and behind his beautiful eyes engraved in his soul, they will still be there, the remnants of an island at the far end of the Mediterranean Sea, the remains of our love." I read that and I thought, oh my God. Oh my God, indeed. That, oh my gosh, every damn passage in this book, I wanted to take photos of. It's like an art form. It's so beautiful. One last thing I wanted to talk to you about that I loved was the timeline and the way this jumped back and forth. I thought it was a great way to tell this whole story in full. And also I loved how when I wanted to know more of a story, it's like Ella read my mind and she stayed like in the same time zone. Yeah, yeah, time zone. zone. (laughs) Like, for example, when Costas and Daphne like reunited years later. Oh, yeah. When I finished a passage, I was like, I don't want to read about the fig tree. Let's just stay here. And she stayed. And it was great to hear a story in full when that needed to happen. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the unexpected nature of the plot for me was so strong. Like... I had no idea where this was going to think that Daphne and Costas spent 25 years apart. Yeah. I mean, when it was hinted towards them having a bit of time apart, I thought like five years max, (laughs) 25 and to come back together so seamlessly was just such a beautiful plot line to me. And it did seem realistic. It seemed realistic that the both of those kinds of characters just didn't meet anyone else really. And I think when I was actually digging into Ela Shafak's life, her and her husband actually separated and got back together perhaps not after this long at all. But I thought, oh, I reckon there's something in that where you can write that reunion pretty well and pretty realistically when you've got that experience yourself. Yeah, and I think especially for Daphne and Costas in the book when they're torn apart during such an intense time, like during a war – it means that reuniting after all those years, it's like more of a possibility because there's like a lot of trauma attached to your departure. And then when you come together, it's like nothing really changed, I guess. For sure. Zara, it's now time for ratings. I know. (laughs) I have no one else to throw to. Usually I'm like, (laughs) will it be Mish? Will it be Zara? Who knows? But Zara, tell me your rating. I am going to give this a four and a half Uh out of five. I think like I adored it. I adored it, but I didn't move through it quickly. Okay. You know, it took me time to read. You had read a lot of books before this though. That's true. So I was on holiday. I'd read probably, I don't know, maybe seven books oh, over a wow. couple of weeks. Not a flesh. She's a, she's a smart gal, no, guys. I just, don't talk, I just don't talk to anyone when I'm on holidays. <laughs> anyone. So maybe you're right. Maybe I got to this book and I was like, ooh, am I booked out? But my favourite experience of a book is speeding through it. Yeah. And I didn't speed through this but I thought it was like a perfect piece of work. So that's why it's a four and a half. It was a perfect piece of work for me as well. So I'm going to give it a five. Nice. Even though I was also checking the pages, but it was because I was reading this on a Kindle for the first time. Like I don't really read on Kindles. And they have like the percentage down the bottom. So it's hard not to look. Every page I turned, I was like, oh, Still on 41%. Yeah, it looks like a battery <laughs> almost on a Kindle. Anyway, I digress. I loved this book and I can't really fault it. I would recommend it to people. But again, I would recommend it with the odd caveat to be like lean into it, let it wash over you, don't overthink it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think if someone had said that to me, I think 
it probably would have been a five because it wouldn't have taken me so long at the start to get in because it took me a little bit of adjusting. Yeah, totally. Like, don't try and predict what's going to happen as well. Just let it flow over you. Let it flow over you is what I would say with this book. I cannot wait to hear what everybody else thinks. I still want Mish to read this book because I really want to know what she thinks. I think she would have loved it. She would have loved it. I'm not sure she will, though. I feel like if the next month book club, she's going to be leaving that to the last minute, reading that to the last (laughs) minute, so she won't have time to read this. I know. She is like a last minute reader, but that's it, isn't it? That is that is it for the July installment of the Shameless Book Club. If you've read The Island of Missing Trees and want to tell us your thoughts or your own rating, come chat to us on our Instagram at the Shameless Book Club. Next month, Annabelle, we will be dabbling in something a little bit different with the memoir In Love by the New York Times bestselling author Amy Bloom. Here's a passage from the blurb. Amy Bloom began to notice changes in her husband, Brian. He retired early from a new job he loved. He withdrew from close friendships. He talked mostly about the past. Suddenly, it seemed there was a glass wall between them and their long walks and talks stopped. The world was altered forever when an MRI confirmed what they could no longer ignore. Brian had Alzheimer's disease. Oh, oh my God. I'm nervous. Oh, this sounds heartbreaking. I know, I know, but that's all for us now. <laughs> we'll be in tears next month when we're we back will. in your ears for book club. But if you want more shameless content, of course, we will be back in your ears on Monday with a brand new episode of Scandal. And we will be properly back with a new Thursday episode on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks so much. media this podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land always was always will be aboriginal land hello guys mish here i am the co-founder of shameless media thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time we're so grateful if you enjoy the stuff that we produce may i recommend our brand new podcast style ish Stylish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.